Good day and welcome to another episode of the University of Minnesota Extension CropCast podcast. Uh, I'm your host, along with uh, my co-host, Dr. Seth Nave at the University of Minnesota and the agronomy department here on St. Paul campus. Well, we've had some dry weather going forward here, Seth. Uh, certainly it's been variable in terms of the precipitation, uh, but soybeans are still continuing to grow out there in Minnesota but I think it's a little variable in terms of emergence and, and just how tolerable are these soybeans to this up and down moisture situation across the state of Minnesota? Well, I, I think we should break it into a couple different pieces here first is that um, we did have some areas that we had um, because of the, because we're actually too wet for quite a while. Uh, farmers got in and planted um, a lot of, lot of soybeans went in a little bit too shallow because we were just in this kind of rainy period and, and honestly it just dried up. So there are some poor stands out there. We have fields that have, you know, some small gaps, some big gaps, some row, whole rows missing. Um, you know, so there is some variability within these fields. I think that's the most important piece to, to tackle first is, is what about those types of situations? And I, you know, um, normally I'd say just wait for the rain and, and those other ones that were in dry dirt will probably come up. Um, of course, you know, digging and looking for viable seed is, is important, but now we're, we're getting out towards the end of, you know, middle to the end of June already. So I think we're a little bit beyond that stage. Um, even beyond the stage of probably spike, spiking soybeans in, I think for the most part, farmers are going to have to deal with what they've got. So with these, with these areas where they do have some, um, and maybe it's just hilltops in some areas or, or eroded areas, or, you know, it's, it's sandy fields, but in these fields where we have poor stands, the, the farmers are gonna have reduced yields in those spots. And I think the rule of thumb is always where we have, you know, kind of one foot gaps in the field or, or more. Those are areas where we have lower yield potentials. So we have a, and it's, it's just like doing, you know, stand counts and establishment for looking at hail, um, hail adjusting. It's the same type of thing that we're dealing with where we've got big gaps, uh, and reduced stands, then we're going to have a reduced potential yield potential out there. Uh, but of course, you know, replanting at this stage would cause a delayed planting and that would be a significant, um, reduction in yield potential. Uh, plus we've got dry soils right now, so there's no real reason to even plant into dry. So that's the first part of your question, I think, is these, some of these tough stands that we've got out there. And then, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, what the dry conditions have on, uh, on better looking soybean fields. Well, you mentioned certainly we're going to be opportunity here to have, uh, looking at some of these fields that are reduced population, but are today's varieties... Uh, capable of compensating to some extent in terms of branching, extra potting, and so forth in situation, even within the row, if there's a plants that are missing here or there in, in terms of that, uh, will they compensate to some degree? Actually, the, the, the reality is, is we did look at this a few years ago. We look at this, we had a study, we called it a decade study, but it was it was kind of a year of release study. We looked at varieties all the way back to the 1920s through the 1990s or two, early 2000s, I guess. And we looked at those varieties for a range of different things, including um, reduced stands. And we found that the old varieties are actually better. Uh, 
Um, so it, it, we've gone a little bit the other direction in that respect. Cause these old varieties with big, you know, that would branch out and have big floppy leaves on them. Those tend to do better in these really poor stands and they were selected under poor stands and, and did better. It's, it's a little like corn. We've, we've selected for soybeans under, under high yielding conditions. And so we end up with, with varieties that yield better under higher populations and more uniform stands. But I think it's a little, it's, it's really an academic point. I think the, the issue is that soybeans are very, very good at compensating. An individual plant can take up that whole space, you know, six inches on either side of it and, and really, really branch out prolifically. It does create more problems for harvest because if we have variable emergence dates, we could have some problems with maturity. Um, and we could have some potential problems with, um, <clears throat> just some yield, uh, yield effects. And then, and then low pod problems with these branch plants that have high yields per plant, then they tend to have a lot of pods down really low. So, um, we've got to get the, get the header down low to, to collect all the seed. So bottom line is there might be some harvest challenges at this point. Uh, there's probably in a lot of situations, not much else that you can do or need to do here, given the fact that we're in the middle of June on situations with that. Uh, and it's uh, indicated uh, before we started, it's hard to go in there and, and, and spike in those existing plants. Uh, just to be aware of that, I think there could be some factors in terms of weed control. Uh, typically, you know, where if we have missing plants, we have reduced competition. So uh, at, at this point, I guess from my background in weed science, it, it's continued to, to monitor these uh, particularly. And, and if we get late emerging say, for example, water hemp, which, we, you know, we anticipate, uh, you know, those are the things that we really have to do is to try to keep whatever we, the situations the stress down in the weeds as well. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a tendency for us to kind of minimize this or reduce the, you know, our, our, our concern for weeds because it's so dry and our crop may be even suffering a little bit in some cases that we think that the soil's too dry to even have weed emergence, and so we shouldn't have to worry about it. But the reality is, those weeds are still going to come. And like you said, with poor stands, the worst, the worst issue for weeds is really around these areas where we don't have good uniform even stands. The best, the best kind of weed control we've got is good, thick, healthy uh, soybean stands. So um, these fields are going to be more problematic for us all year long. Well, let's turn to a different subject matter here. I know that this last week uh, uh, you were out of the office and out of the campus and I think out of the country, and so to speak. I know we did a podcast here without you, but exactly where were you in terms of uh, activities when you were outside of the U.S.? You want to talk to us a little bit about those things and, and why a Minnesota agronomist uh, would end up overseas. So where did you go? That's a, that's a good question. Yeah. So I was, you know, literally across the globe. Um, I was in Indonesia and so it's, it's not only is it halfway around the world, but it's also on the other side of the equator. So it, it is literally, um, you know, right across the, the earth from here and it's, it gets to be a long plane flight, um, 12 hour time difference on the clock. So it does get to be a little bit of a challenge to get in and out of Indonesia, and so I was I was there with a with a group um, uh, that we call NSM, the Northern Soybean Marketing Group, and um, and I'll, I'll maybe give you a little bit more background on them in, in just a minute. 
uh, and uh, USEC, which is the U.S. Soybean Export Council, had some joint meetings uh, in Sarabaya, Indonesia, for um, potential buyers of, of soybeans, both, um, both from um, uh, soybeans to uh, and soybean meal to produce feed from, but also soybeans uh, as a food grade soybean for to make tempeh and tofu uh, from. So those are important. Those are both very important markets. Uh, the the Indonesians buy a lot of of soybeans and soybean meal, and so we're really trying to support um, demand both from the U.S. and from the Upper Midwest. In that context, is this uh, part of an effort that Minnesota soybean growers are involved in supporting um, through their checkoff dollars uh, in terms of um, export? Um, states get together. What's the background of, of where this started and established and, and uh, how successful has it been? Yeah, I guess, you know, I'll actually... I'll hold on your question and I'll actually start with what you implied with your very first question is why would a, why would a soybean agronomist be doing this kind of thing? And since we've got a little time here, I'll, I'll give you the long version. Uh, basically, um, in graduate school, if we go way back to the 1990s, I was in, at Iowa State and I was studying uh, soybean physiology and the, the professor I was working for was really interested in soybean protein, but also the quality of that protein. There was interest in increasing the value of the soybean meal that's produced from soybeans. And so we were trying to increase two specific amino acids, cysteine and methionine in soybean protein. And, um, you know, that was kind of an academic topic and very, very, very detailed, uh, fine um, plant physiology work that I was doing a lot, mostly greenhouse and hydroponic work and I did a lot of work with uh, radioactive um, tracer elements and, and things like that. Um, but then I took a job in Minnesota as a soybean agronomist as, as more of an applied researcher. And I started working mostly on yield because that's what farmers really are looking for. Uh, but when I started here, early 2000s, uh, one of the first things I noticed was that there was a lot of concern in Minnesota about low protein levels. So I... After a couple of years doing my regular job here, I started looking at soybean composition in Minnesota. We started doing a survey of the Minnesota crop every year um, and kind of identifying the variation in protein levels that we had in the state and trying to identify whether we were really as bad as, as we thought we were for protein level and trying to help farmers choose better varieties. We even I even released a list for a few years that was the winners and losers list for soybean variety selection based on yield and protein. And, um, so, um, that was really kind of my start into this area. And then it just kind of expanded beyond that. Now I conduct a survey of the U S crop every year since 2006, we've been doing that. So uh, a lot of farmers probably listening probably have received a kit from us, uh, in the fall and, and send us soybean samples that comes into my lab. And, uh, we then take those overseas and meet with buyers, uh, overseas and help promote soybean exports from the U S. Um, but you know, somewhere along the line, I, you know, we started thinking about this thing as like, well, protein, so Minnesota protein has, Minnesota soybeans have lower protein than, than other States and certainly lower than Brazilian soybeans. Uh, and my work at Iowa state, uh, showed that there was kind of this inverse relationship between the quality of 
the quantity of protein, excuse me, and the quality of the protein, meaning when we did have higher protein concentrations in the seed, then the quality of that protein tended to decrease and vice versa. So I took that idea and I brought it up here and we started talking about it with some marketing people here in Minnesota. And we really decided there's enough data and we started doing a little bit more research to, to really build a marketing program for Minnesota soybeans out of this idea that, that soybeans from the northern states have a better quality of protein, even though they have a, have a, are maybe deficient in the quantity of protein. So, so we started this EAA thing, essential amino acid uh, message. A fellow named Peter Mishik and I worked with Minnesota and we built a group of three states that uh, was called Northern Soybean Marketing. So this was a farmer-led group um, uh, that had a marketer. This is Peter Mishik and myself as the scientist kind of on board initiating that. And so we worked with the two Dakotas in Minnesota to really build a program around marketing soybeans from the upper Midwest to help promote the sales of those because we were basically getting discriminated against in the world market. So so that's really the long, long story on this, and we've we've continued that, and and um, and um, you know I'll, I'd like to talk a little bit about more about NSM and and things, but I um, I've been kind of filibustering this from for a little bit here, so I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Dave, and maybe there's some questions you have over over all this. Well, maybe define a little bit more when we talk about quality, and you uh, intimated that the quality here that you were looking at was. Um, amino acid? Is it the certain amino acids? Is it the level of amino acids? But in terms of promoting our soybeans and from Minnesota and talking about it from a quality, uh, what do you quote lead with in terms of quality message from our soybeans? Is it, is it the balance, the portfolio, the amount of amino acids, the, the level or certain types of amino acids that we may have an advantage over with our soybeans versus, say, for example, uh, soybeans from other parts of the United States or, or even from Brazil. Yeah, it's a perfect, perfect question. That's something I, I need to cover for sure with, with this audience is that the, the, um, there's really two pieces to that. One is that speci- your, the answer to your specific question is, is that we are really focused on the most essential amino acids for the animal. And those, um, because... Um, swine and poultry and humans, for that matter, um, can only manufacture about half of the amino acids um, in within our own bodies. But we have to we have to uh, ingest the other half. That's that's why we are um, you know as animals we've lost um, over evolution we've lost the um, the ability to synthesize all the amino acids. So that's why we are required to eat protein so we can we can ingest those amino acids and, and those can go on to build muscle and, and body mass. And so, um, there are, um, there are around 10 essential amino acids in, in, in feed and, and meat that we eat that, that are essential for our growth. But among them, there's, there's a handful of around five that are the most limiting, um, because, Every species and every age of species, whether you're a baby or an, an adult or whether you're, um, you know, a feeder pig or whether you're a broiler chicken or a layer, 
and depending on your age, those, those, all those different species and ages, um, growth stages have a different kind of, um, uh, uh, proportion of amino acid, each amino acid that they require. So the nutritionists build uh, rations around this very thing. They, they mix corn and soy together, and these are very complementary in terms of their amino acid balance. So they, they kind of plug each other's holes. And that's been very good for us over time. But now we have synthetic amino acids that help this further. So the five essential amino acids that we're talking about are primarily these these amino acids primarily that are most limiting to the animal, and they're also ones that we have synthetic amino acids for. So we can cover up from poor, balanced um, um, soybean meal, um, but it takes uh, a nutritionist has to has to pay for those synthetic amino acids in, in order to plug those individual holes for those amino acids. So what we're talking about, lysine, everybody knows about lysine, tends to be most limiting in corn, soybean diets for a lot of animals. And then the two uh, sulfur amino acids I mentioned earlier, cysteine and methionine, um, then threonine and tryptophan um, as well. So uh, we've got five essential amino acids, and those do tend, in some, tend to be enriched in uh, soybeans from the upper Midwest in lower protein soybeans. So um, what this really means and what the message has really evolved into over time is, is the fact that buyers source protein, soybeans for its protein and, and they buy meal based on a protein level in that meal. Uh, but the reality is soy, um, animals don't require protein. They require these essential amino acids. They require amino acids and they require essential amino acids. And in fact, they require available essential amino acids. So I'm getting a little bit into the weeds here, but it's really important that, um, you know, the idea that protein is not a good indicator of, of the quality of, of soybeans is really our lead message to, to end users because this has been ingrained for 100 years or more um, since the days of, of Keldahl and, and, and other scientists that first identified nitrogen as an indicator for protein level. Um, buyers have been sourcing their, their feed ingredients based on protein. That's the lead quality indicator. But feeding trials have actually indicated that protein is not even a very good indicator of, of overall quality itself. So uh, that really leads into a lot of my research. I'm really focused on identifying measures for soybeans and soybean meal that are more indicative of the overall quality, that provide a better measure of quality than an extension of quality is the value to that end user because our message is you can, you know, you can buy high protein soybeans from Brazil if you choose and feel good about it. But if you have to either supplement those with additional amino acids that cost, um, cost you money or uh, it's not providing you the growth rate that you would expect based on that protein level if you're a less sophisticated feeder, um, then, um, then you're at a disadvantage. You may as well buy some cheaper discounted soybeans, uh, primarily from the Pacific Northwest that come out of um, the upper Midwest where we are in these three states. And, and now we have added um, 
uh, Nebraska and Wisconsin into our northern soybean marketing group. So we're, we're, we're this, this gang of, of five upper Midwestern states that are, are working together on this, on this question. One of my last questions is, why Indonesia? All we typically have heard about in the past is China, and will they take them and will they not? There's been a lot of China-centric in terms of, uh, from a media standpoint, uh, what do some of these other countries that you've been to or Indonesia um, have to offer for our upper Midwest soybeans that perhaps China doesn't? Is there a limited market there or the expanding markets in Indonesia? So why the effort and the time spent in Indonesia? That's a great question. Yeah. So again, there's a couple pieces to this. One is we can, um, going back, um, you know, 10 years, this group started working in Southeast Asia to try to increase um, meal uh, exports into this region. This region, uh, Southeast Asia is primarily, the countries in Southeast Asia primarily import their soybeans as meal. So as a higher value product, they don't, they aren't processing soybeans in those countries. China is like uh, Korea and Japan in North Asia, these countries primarily import soybeans and then process them them, themselves. So it's a little bit, it's slightly different market in terms of what products they're using. But we also, from the beginning, the farmers that I work with noticed that, you know, that these are growth opportunities in Southeast Asia. We have growing populations and increased GDPs in these countries. These countries are, are ones that are uh, will be eating more and more poultry um, uh, over time. Uh, poultry primarily, especially when we're talking about a country like uh, Indonesia, that's 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 uh, a Muslim country, um, and so there's going to be increased demand. So that needs to be satisfied one way or another. So let's let's get ahead of this and and position U.S. soybeans and soybean meal, and especially northern soybean and soybean meal uh, in these markets. The second piece of this is really this, the, you know, the, the issues with China really got flipped around um, during the trade war that we had a few years ago. China basically cut off shipments of soybeans from the U.S. You know, the long story is that China has purposefully decided to import soybeans from, um, rather than grow soybeans themselves, because they have an alternative. They can buy from Brazil and Argentina in one half of the year or the U.S. in the other half of the year. And what they found during the trade war is that they could basically buy enough soybeans from Brazil and Argentina to satisfy their needs for most of the year. And they didn't weren't really that dependent on us. And in the end, that's not a huge problem because during the trade war, we just kind of flipped around these markets and, and um, China bought up a more, a more South American soybeans and soybean meal. And Southeast Asia ended up, you know, missing those suppliers because they were sourcing into China. So they turn more heavily to the U S. So I think a lot of our efforts in Southeast Asia were fortuitous in that, you know, things like non tariff type barriers, you know, trade wars, um, and other, other factors can, can drop in, um, anytime and disrupt these markets. So it's important to be, be in those markets and promote products and, and show and demonstrate the value of those products um, for those. So, so your job, so to speak, in, in going to Indonesia, it, and it, obviously they have a large poultry uh, enterprise, and and and, uh, and there's a lot of poultry consumed, and that's where uh, you know the meal and, and the beans are going. 
Uh, your job was to be their scientific expert, so to speak, to talk about the quality, um, how this relates to, you know, the soybeans were growing and so forth to provide, provide that authenticity that it's not just a uh, percent of protein. That's exactly right. And I work side by side with a, a professor. Um, he's an American fellow, but he's been um, a professor in uh, Australia for, for several years. He just retired. His name is Bob Swick. He's Dr. Bob Swick is uh, very famous in the region because he worked for the American Soybean Association years ago. Um, he knows the market really well. He knows poultry nutrition. He's a poultry nutritionist. And so he he provides a lot of the nutrition information for the nutritionists that we meet with. And then I talk about the background information about the variation in soybean and soybean meal uh, quality uh, and value. And then he translates that, that into the, um, to the, to the market. So he and I are kind of tag teaming this as the two scientists. We, we tend to travel with a farmer or two that can talk about their own farmer operations and then meet with, uh, meet with buyers over there. I do, I do want to mention a little bit some other things about Indonesia that people might be interested in is that I know that many people have probably heard of tempeh. Uh, and, you know, everybody's heard of tofu, but tempeh is another um, soy food product. Um, and it's really um, um, a cultural staple uh, for, um, for consumption in, in Indonesia. Uh, tempeh is basically fermented soybeans that are fermented whole, and it it makes kind of a cake. Uh, it, you know, I mean, it, disparagingly, it looks a little like just a pile of moldy soybeans, um, but it tastes much better than that, and it's typically cooked up quite well and fried up, and, and it certainly doesn't have a moldy taste to it. it the inoculum that they use uh, doesn't, doesn't leave that kind of a taste uh, in your mouth. Uh, but this is a very, very um, important um, staple for them. Uh, the Indonesians have been buying about two and a half million metric tons of soybeans from the U.S. to make tempeh and tofu. They're very interesting in that they prefer uh, U.S. soybeans because of a high, primarily because of a high physical quality of these seed. They're lighter colored. Uh, we have low FM levels. Um, you know, they, they end up having a good overall taste, uh, to them. So they buy more than 90% of their soybeans for tempeh from the U S. So although we, as a group, Northern soybean marketing really promote feed use, um, uh, the tempeh market and tofu market is actually really, really, really important in, uh, Indonesia. And so it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting place for us to go because we can talk about um, food use. And the other, the other part that's interesting for me for a, as a soybean agronomist, as a production agronomist, is that the Indonesians buy containerized soybeans. Their intellectual, or their, um, uh, their identity preserved, I'm sorry, I had the other IP there, their identity preserved, but they're not uh, your typical identity preserved soybeans. They tend to be uh, GM type soybeans uh, that that some companies are able to, um, you know, identify good production areas with with good protein levels and amino acid levels. They clean them a little bit and source uh, soybeans specifically for this market. Then ship those in containers uh, to Indonesia for use in in this market. So. 
Um, of course, they come at some additional uh, cost to the Indonesians over just buying a Panamax vessel full of bulk soybeans from the, from the Gulf or from the PNW. Um, but on the other hand, they receive a product um, directly from a supplier. They have a better idea of where those soybeans are grown and they have a little bit more control over things like FM and, and variability in, in seed size and, and other things. So, so there is a really nice niche for Indonesia uh, and the U.S. in that we're able, we have r- good exporters here in the U.S. that are able to supply them specifically with a product that they desire and they produce it for them. And this is, this is really the heart of what I my messaging for U.S. producers and the U.S. soybean industry is, you know, let's, instead of just making a product and just assuming that the world's going to come begging for us, like, you know, we had a situation from the 50s on in the U.S., we're in a situation now where we really have to market our product and we have to be able to provide a, a product that the market wants. The customer is always right. So, this is an example of, of a customer wanting a specific type of soybeans, and the, the U.S. happened to be in a good position to deliver it, and we're doing a really good job fulfilling that. I should mention that when we use the term FM, we're talking about foreign material, and uh, that's really a, a tip of the hat to not only Minnesota but upper Midwest producers to limit the amount of weed seed, other foreign material, and that's desirous on the part, whether you're in Indonesia or China, if we can keep and deliver clean soybeans, so to speak, um, that goes uh, that goes a long way uh, in in terms uh, in terms of that. Well, we're getting towards the end of our program here, Seth. Any last comments you want to make, or where's your next trip to go to, so to speak? Uh, uh, what where's what is the emphasis, and and where will this uh, lead you? Well, I'm kind of wrapping up our our spring trips. I think I've made about five trips to Asia. Uh, here uh, with NSM and with USEC uh, in the past uh, four, five, six months. And so we're kind of wrapping up this spring trip and I uh, spring or spring and summer uh, trips for me anyway. Um, I will be going, I won't be going to Asia again until uh, November. And that's when I take the, the um, results from the quality, um, the U.S. quality uh, survey uh, to Asia and meet with buyers in in North Asia. And then uh, in January, then we're going to start our northern soybean marketing trips again uh, throughout Southeast Asia and, 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 and run those again. So I'm grateful for all the support we've had from this group. The NSM group has been uh, really creative uh, in working uh, with state um, QSSBs. These are qualified state soybean boards. Um, uh, to, to receive uh, su- general support from those states. Uh, and then working with groups like USEC uh, to put together marketing programs overseas. So um, this, is a, this is really um, um, of some of the best investment, I think, of, of soybean checkoff dollars that we've got to increase our demand for our product especially from the upper Midwest where we tend to have some big negative bases um, during the year, the whole idea here is to for farmers um, that aren't really, you know, haven't thought much about this marketing business and international marketing is that we're really trying to increase that local price of those soybeans in an area where we produce more soybeans than we need in the western part of the Corn Belt. And so it's really important that we move those and, and move them efficiently through, um, through the Pacific Northwest into Asia and Southeast Asia. Well, thank you, Seth, for the 
introduction and uh, the very detailed conversation about some of this international marketing effort here that benefit, obviously, um, the upper Midwest and, and Minnesota soybean growers. Uh, we appreciate that you took the time uh, to bring us that information today on this version and episode, uh, and we welcome you back again for the next one. Uh, hopefully, we'll be talking a little bit more about irrigation, some of the other things and research projects here uh, as we go forward. So again, thanks for being our guest and a co-host, obviously here, of the University of Minnesota Extension CropCast podcast. Thank you, Dave.